Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. I was thinking that the little Bible apps on our phones and iPads ought to have like an option where you can get a, a, a sound of crinkling pages as you're clicking through your Bible app. Acts chapter 27. <clears throat> if you've worshipped with us on any kind of regular basis, you'll recognize that our service order and sequence has been a little different this morning. Uh, no Old Testament and New Testament readings. Um, we've only sung two hymns before the uh, preaching of the Word, not the usual three. And that's because this is a very long text before us this morning, 44 verses. And yet it tells one continuous story, and so it ought to be preached in one sermon. And so we have set aside a little extra time to consider Acts chapter 27. And so without any further ado, let me pray, ask God's guidance, and we will jump into this text. God, do not allow us to be thinking about this afternoon's football games and take away from our mind uh, last night's delicious meal. Don't, don't let us be concerned about tomorrow's work issues. God, bring our attention fully to your word right now. Lord, free us from our pride, which cannot let go of the seeming slight that we experienced this week. Break the stubbornness within us, within us, which does not allow us to forgive as we should. Relief, relieve us, release us from the belief that we know what is best. Lord, bring us into full submission before your word. Father, help us set aside our fear of this disease swirling around. Gently suspend the angst we have over our government. Let our income concerns give way to generosity this morning. Father, bring us great comfort from your word today. Focus us, subdue us, comfort us. All of this we boldly ask because Jesus said we could. Amen. I am a landlubber. Despite living on two peninsulas... Having come from Michigan, surrounded as it is by water, to here on Delmarva, surrounded as it is by water, I'm a landlubber. I don't know much about maritime culture. I know a few basics, aft, you know, port, starboard. That's about it. That's about the limit of what I know about maritime vocabulary. And yet, well, before us, we have a text full of maritime vocabulary and maritime stories. So we're going to have to work our way through these things. And in fact, my own personal uh, 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 connection with living on the water, with boats and that kind of culture, early on in my relationship with Becky, I can't honestly remember if we were engaged or newly married, but we were at her family's cottage and her uncle allowed me to take out his boat. So Becky and I were going to go out for an evening cruise out on the water and the family's all sitting out on the dock enjoying the summer evening. And I get in the boat and I back it out and I start away and clunk, 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 clunk. I break the prop about 30 yards off from shore right in front of everybody. Apparently, those who know boats could recognize the shadow of the rocks under the water, but this landlubber couldn't. That's my experience of the boating world. But here we have a long passage with a lot of maritime nautical uh, 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 things happening. And so as we go along, as I often do, we will stop on occasion and uh, uh, try to set it into its context, try to explain it so it makes some sense as we go through it. But this morning, we're going to do a bit more than just stop and explain. 
And in fact, on different sections, I'm going to stop and not just explain, but try to draw out the meaning and even some of the application. In other words, instead of there being a reading followed by one sermon, there's going to be a bunch of little readings followed by a bunch of, hopefully, little sermons. And so as you follow along, if you look at pages 10 and 11 in the bulletin, I think they can be helpful this morning. I'm not saying that you have to take notes, but on page 10 there's a map. As we follow along, there's going to be a lot of geographic places mentioned that may be unfamiliar to us, and there's a map there that'll help on page 10. And on page 11, there is the outline of this morning's sermon, which should help keep us focused. So with that said, let's jump in. Uh, Actually, I have one more background piece. Before we actually read Acts 27, I want to remind us, and that's point one there on page 11, of the assurance that Paul has received in the past. So let's jump back two years in Paul's life before the events of Acts 27 and be reminded that he had been, he had faced a mob in Jerusalem. He had been called before the Sanhedrin. They had, they were wanting to kill him. The Roman tribune had to step in and save his life. And that night while he's in prison, in the Roman prison, having just had his fellow Jews try to kill him, the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul. Jesus himself appeared to Paul and comforted Paul with the following words. Actually, I'm going to read the the whole thing. The the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, and these are the words that Jesus said to Paul, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, Jesus himself appeared to Paul, and this is at least the second time that Jesus has appeared to Paul in his life, and told him that he would go to Rome, told him that he was going to testify in Rome. Now, how many of us have said over the years, you know, if Jesus would just come talk to me directly, face-to-face, as he did back in the Bible times, then all would be good. I would have no doubts. My faith would be 100% secured. Let's see if this is what happens in Paul's life. Paul is a righteous man. Paul is a faithful man. Paul is an apostle. Surely, surely, if he has been given this promise by Jesus himself, then he can just sit back, relax, and take it easy on the way to Rome, right? Let's find out. Join me now as we start reading. And before I even begin, I will point out, we're going to hear the return of the word we, the pronoun we. A reminder that while Luke has been with Paul all along these last two years, Luke's not been directly involved. He's been merely an observer of the trials. Now he's actually involved again, and so we will see the return of the pronoun we. And we begin now in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan court named Julius. Julius is going to be important in this story. Reminder that centurions were mid-level officers in the Roman army, roughly equivalent to a captain in our army today. Reminder also that back then, without the aid of electronic, instantaneous electronic communication, these men could not check in and get orders from higher up. They had to make a lot of decisions on their own. They had a lot of authority as a consequence of that and a lot of power. We're going to see several times how God is going to work through Julius's decisions to bring about his purposes. Verse 2, and embarking in a ship of Adramedium, I I honestly, I practice these words, I really do. And yet I can't do it when I get up here. Adramedium, 
And I'll just stop and say a ship of adramedium is not, you know, made of some special element. This is not the Marvel comics. This is not Captain America's vibranium, okay? Adramedium is the home port of this ship. It's on the west coast of modern-day Turkey, and it's leaving Caesarea to sail back there. And embarking in a ship of Adramedium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Uh, we, lost, we last saw Aristarchus in Acts 19. He was attacked by the riots and the mob in Acts 19. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Uh, probably not, Paul's not just set free in the city, probably some of Julius's men are going with him, um, but nevertheless, he, is, uh, he does have some freedom. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. I told you I know a little bit of vocabulary, I know this one. The lee is to be on the sheltered side of something. You know, not the windward side, but the side where, the wind, where you're protected from the wind. So if you look at the map, you see they were sailing north of Cyprus at this point because the winds were coming out of the southwest at this part of the journey. <clears throat> um, verse 5, And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of uh, Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Again, this is a ship uh, whose home port is in Alexandria, Egypt. And we're going to discover in a few moments it's a grain ship. It's loaded with wheat. Uh, Rome had to import somewhere north of 150,000 tons of grain per year. And Egypt was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. And so a ship full of grain headed from Egypt to Rome was a pretty common thing. And it's not surprising at all that that's where they found a ride. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassie. So we asked the question, you know, Paul, having been uh, assured by Jesus himself that he would end up in Rome, does he just sit back and relax? Does he just rest in God's providence. And we see, to some degree, he really does in this section. We don't see Paul doing anything. He's just along for the ride. He's coasting, as it were. He's resting. God's providence, through men like Julius, through the ships that were uh, uh, crisscrossing the the, uh, Mediterranean Sea, God's providence is bringing about God's promise, apart from God's man having to do anything. So there really is time in the Christian life where we just rest. We sit back and we allow the events unfolding around us to carry us toward God's foreordained conclusion. We see Paul resting here in God's promise to get him to Rome. But then we see caution in verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I believe the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now isn't that an interesting statement? Paul 
who has been told that he's going to go to Rome to testify, is now saying we could lose our lives. Oh, he just doesn't have enough faith. We all have more faith than Paul, clearly. So what do we see going on here? Well, a couple of comments. First of all, we, uh, uh, the fast, um, that's the Day of Atonement, what Jews today would call Yom Kippur. Okay? Uh, this is almost certainly A.D. 59, which means the Day of Atonement would have been October 6th. So it's, he said the fast has already passed, and so now we're into mid-October. And the rule of thumb on the Mediterranean Sea in the ancient world was that you were pretty safe if you sailed before September 15th, and nobody in their right mind sailed after November 15th, and there was this gray area for two months. From September 15th to November 15th, there was this two-month kind of gray area. Do you, do you sail? Do you not to sail? To set out, to not set out, that is the question. And they're right smack dab in the middle of that. And Paul is standing up and saying, we ought not to sail. A reminder that Paul is not a novice traveler. This is at least his 13th sea voyage that we can find, we can account for in the scriptures. His 13th sea voyage. And he's an intelligent man. He's picked up some things along the way. So whether this is divine revelation, that danger is in their future, or it's just a very informed, very wise, learned Paul rendering his own personal opinion, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But either way, Paul is offering his opinion. And you know, that's what old men do. They offer their opinions, even when they're not asked. Finally, verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. I guess that makes sense. And because the harbor was not suitable, a place called Fair Havens, come on, that sounds suitable to me. Because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there. And on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. How about that? Even back then, people liked to winter in Phoenix. Who knew? Now, uh, no sooner have I pointed out the way in which Paul rested in the promise of God, how he allowed God's providence to work things out to get him on his way to Rome, we see here just the opposite happening. Paul not resting at all, but taking an active part in trying to make sure things go a certain way. Paul is applying a measure of caution. Isn't it interesting how often in the modern American church we preach that caution is a sign of a lack of faith? That true faith is shown in boldness, just going out there and doing what God's promised and just acting on God's promises without regard for the consequences. As if North Americans today have more faith than the Apostle Paul had. Paul is practicing caution. It's interesting. The scriptures are full of places where it tells us the righteous are wise. They're wise. They act in ways that consider the risks. They put away money, the the Proverbs tell us. They save up money, not because they don't trust God, but because they recognize that wisdom says I ought to have something in savings. They are careful about who they interact with. They don't say, well, you know, if I'm saved, I can't lose my salvation, and I can just have any old friends I want to have. No. The wisdom of righteousness says, 
I need to take some caution and be careful about who I hang out with. The righteous don't cross the street without looking for cars just because God is in control. Paul has been assured by Jesus himself that he's going to get to Rome, and yet here we see him practicing caution. Recklessness is not faith, and faith is not recklessness. There are times to rest in God's promises and allow providence to work around us, but there are times to act with wisdom and caution. And continuing now to the the third part of the text, the fourth part of the sermon, there are also times to be hard at work. Picking up in verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor. Uh, That is, they lifted the anchor off the bottom and into the ship. And they sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster, I'm not sure that's the nor'easter that we have here on the, you know, on the east coast of the U.S., but, but similar, uh, 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 called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Real quick comment here. The ship's boat is what you might call a dinghy. It's that little craft. If they couldn't put into a port proper, a harbor proper, if they had to anchor a couple hundred yards offshore, they could use the boat to row into shore and get back out to the ship. That's what we're talking about, this little boat here. And in the midst of this storm, they have gone under the lee, the protected side of a small island. So they've got a few minutes of break. The seas are a little calmer. The wind's a little calmer. And that boat's been trailing out behind them, and they pull it up, and they lift it up on the side because it's getting swamped out there, and they don't want to lose their little dinghy, their little boat, so they pull it up into the main ship. And after, verse 17, and after hoisting it up, they use supports to undergird the ship. As I mentioned, I don't have a lot of seafaring stories, but I do have one story of supports and a storm out on the water. So I mentioned already that Becky's family has a cottage on a lake, and it's a relatively large lake. I think it's like the 10th largest lake in the U.S., so it's pretty big. Um, And one of the traditions of the family is in the springtime to go put out the dock, to set the dock back in the water so you can get in and out of the boat easily. You can sit out there and watch the sunset. It's a lovely time. So one year, we're putting the dock in. This is some years back. We get the dock all set up, and there are these crisscross support members. So there's poles that hold the dock up. And there are these crisscross support members that X back and forth that are supposed to hold the poles in place, and we couldn't put them in. I can't remember why. I think we couldn't find the bag of all the nuts and bolts, the hardware. So that night, we, we, we went to bed. Well, a storm blew in out of the northeast. A storm came in, and because of the lack of crisscross support members, the waves break, broke over the dock and demolished it. We came out the next morning, and our dock was all over the, the, the lake, floating down everywhere. We had to go gather it all up and bring it all back. That's probably what's going on. Nobody's certain here, but this idea of supporting and undergirding the ship, probably they've gone down into the hall and they're putting crisscross beams and ropes to try to make the, 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 the structure of the ship more rigid. So as the waves hit it, it doesn't twist and give way and break up. That's nobody's certain exactly. You know, Luke's a landlubber like me. He doesn't explain it in enough detail, but that's probably what's happening there. 
Then, fearing that they would uh, run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Lowered the gear, driven along. My fellow car enthusiasts are thinking, wow, they just slammed it down into second and slowed down. Well, that's not how this works. That's not what they're talking about here. Um, lower the gear. They have taken all down all the sails, all the rigging, all the gears, all the pulleys, all the ropes. They have dropped all of that off the mast. So it's not banging around and flying around. They have secured all of that gear. Sirtis is mentioned here. Um, It's a place of uh, notoriously dangerous sandy shoals that are very shallow off from uh, the coast of North Africa, modern-day Libya. Because this uh, wind is blowing out of the north, they're being blown south toward Africa, and they're afraid, the sailors are afraid, they're going to hit these sandy shoals. And these sandy shoals aren't up, like, it's not like they're up close to shore where you can just, you know, wade in from there. There's still a ways out. If you hit them and get stranded and break up out there, you're going to drown. There's no hope of getting to shore. And so that's what they're afraid of here. Picking up in verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Okay, I'm just curious. Does it bother any of you that boats have bilge pumps? It freaks me out. Where is all that water coming in? Shouldn't the boat be watertight? Well, the truth is the boats are not, and certainly not in the ancient world. And they had bilge pumps. They were, you know, driven by human power back then, but they had bilge pumps back then. What's happening is the storm is so severe that the bilge pumps cannot keep up. The boat is leaking between every plank of the hull, and they're taking on water, and they're sitting lower and lower and lower in the water, which means even more waves are going to break over, and the risk is compounded. So while they're working the bilge pump to get the water out, they also realize they need to lighten the boat. And so they begin to throw the cargo Overboard. The cargo is what is going to pay for this trip. The cargo is what the owner is counting on to make his living. So if the owner is agreeing to throw the cargo overboard, this is serious. The situation is dire. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. There is tremendous effort being made here to bring about what God promised. Let me say that again. There is a tremendous effort being expended to bring about what God promised. It's going to be a few more days on this journey, and Paul will eventually get up and preach a little word of encouragement, but notice he doesn't here. He doesn't get up and say anything. He doesn't say, hey, relax, guys, take a break, play some cards. It's all good. My God promised me I'm getting to Rome, which means the ship can't break up. You know, the sermon Paul really should have preached was this one. Hey, Jesus, what did he do on the storm-tossed boat? He slept. We should all sleep. It is not what happens here. And neither Luke nor uh, 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 Aristarchus are whispering into Paul's ear. Why don't you tell him to stop? There's no evidence that any of the Christians on board this ship are saying, don't worry, don't fret. We've been promised. It's all good. There's no effort to stop the effort. There's not one word of, hey, just rest in Christ. Now, to be sure, we can do the wrong things. God's promises are not a reason to do nothing. 
but they're also not a reason to do the wrong things. The story of Abraham and Hagar is probably the best example I could think of anyway. God promised a child to Abraham, but no child had come. And so Abraham decides that maybe God wants him to step up and take action to fulfill the promise. And so he sleeps with Hagar. And how did that work out? Horribly. It caused no end of problems in his family immediately and for centuries afterwards. Abraham was not called to just sit back and do nothing. He wasn't called to just rest in God's promises. But he also wasn't called to do the wrong thing. God had promised a child. Now think about that. Does that mean Abraham should do nothing? Sarah might have liked it that way. Not tonight, I'm, honey, I'm tired. Let's just rest. But that's not how children come about. There were things for them to do, but not the wrong things. I'm not 100% certain of the right thing. Maybe more romantic strolls under the desert stars. There were things for them to do, but it's not an excuse to do the wrong thing. The Christian life includes times to rest in God's providence. And there are times in the Christian life where we have to practice caution and take care and use the better part of wisdom. But there are times like this where a tremendous amount of effort and work goes into living the Christian life. <clears throat> but now comes verse 20 the fifth part of this sermon. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now surely, pastor, he means the pagans. They lost all hope. The Christians on the ship, they kept hope, right? There's no evidence for that. And in fact, I'm going to argue in a few moments what we're going to see next is evidence that everyone on this ship has lost hope. That there is a darkness that has settled in on all of them. They are terrified. It's not just the pagans that have given up hope. The Christians on board are starting to wonder, did we misunderstand? Did we get the promise of God wrong? Have we done something to cause God to negate that promise. What's going on? Have any of you ever wondered if God's promises are going to come through? Have you had doubts that rose to this kind of level that all hope is abandoned? I'd encourage you, as much as you're able, to to join our adult Sunday school class. We've had some wonderful discussions, and one of them recently related to this we were reminded in our Sunday school study that we are not saved by our faith. Let me say that again. We are not saved by our faith. We are saved through faith, but we are saved by God's grace. Why does that matter? Why is that important here? Because when we think that we are saved by our faith, these sorts of times in our life become a dark spiral. I have doubts. And if I have doubts, that means I'm not saved because my faith is what's supposed to save me, so now I'm really in trouble. 
But we're reminded here that it's not our faith that saves us. It is the grace of God. God's promise was in effect regardless of the faith of those on board. God's promise was in effect regardless of how they felt in that moment. It is the righteousness of Christ that saves us. That doesn't change because we're going through a tough time and we have some doubts. Our doubts and fears are no match for the righteousness of Jesus. And then we see how God steps in to offer reassurance. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up. Did I just skip ahead? Uh, uh, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. This is not an I told you so speech, but rather Paul is establishing his credentials. He said, listen, you guys ignored me once and I proved to be right, so listen to me this time. That's all he's saying here. Yet I urge, but yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. You see, this is why I think the previous section, the doubt of the previous section included Paul. Because he doesn't get up and offer these words of hope earlier saying two years ago, I got a promise from God, he has to get a new promise. He has to be renewed in the word of God. The word of God has to come to him again. And Paul is then encouraged and and, and strengthened in his faith. And then he's able to go out and encourage others. Paul now has the word of God come to him, and then he can take it to others. We need to be reminded often of God and his promises, and his abilities. Golly, I wonder why there's a one in seven pattern for corporate worship. I wonder why there is a weekly time when we're supposed to go hear our God speak to us and offer his encouragement. Some of us have had this experience in the the, 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 the trying times of COVID or a job loss or, or relational strife. We had the word of God come to our memory and bring us the encouragement that we see Paul having here. But at the same time, I'm amazed at how many people pull back from the church at precisely the times they need it the most. If you're discouraged and you're depressed and you're doubting, go to God. Go to church. You're caught in sin that is just overwhelming you. It's swamping your life and it risks sinking you. Go to God. Go to church. You're frustrated, confused, and you're hurting. Go to God. Go to church. Be reassured by God's word of his promise. Let me offer some of that reassurance right now. If the Spirit of God has made Jesus known to your heart, and you have received him, 
and it's his righteousness that you're counting on, then it doesn't matter what storm you're facing right now. It doesn't matter how the waves are breaking over your head. It doesn't matter how dark the night. You will come out on the other side. You are going to land safely on heaven's far shore. Amen? Amen. Paul received assurance, and so he began this journey in the providential care of God. But Paul still counseled caution and wisdom despite that assurance. And Paul welcomed the hard work of the sailors to save his life. Despite all of that, he doubted. But God was gracious and gave him reassurance. His word came again to Paul. Now let's look at what comes next in verse 26. But we must run aground on some island. That's quite the marketing strategy there, Paul. Instead of your best life now, Paul offers, hey, when your life runs aground. Rather than 40 days of purpose, Paul is trying to sell 40 days until your life bottoms out. Instead of the name it and claim it self-centeredness of the prayer of Jabez, Paul wants to make his millions on the book, The Prayer of the Drowning Sailor. Your life is going to run aground. We must run aground on some island. I am convinced that one of the great sins of the evangelical church over the last 40, 50, 60 years in America has been the happy-go-lucky gospel. All good news, all the time, only upbeat, only positive. It sells books, and it fills churches, but it's emptying the church. For something happens when we are told that everything's going to be good all the time, and then it isn't. Our doubts grow. That doesn't build faith, it builds doubt. When we're told that everything is going to be good, that God just means for your life to be an easy piece of cake from this point forward, and it doesn't happen that way, it undergirds faith. It doesn't build it. Lord willing, next week is our last week in the book of Acts, after which we're going to do a short survey of the minor prophets. Boy, you want to uh, uh, take your church and and drive people away and make sure that it never makes the news, preach like the prophets preached. Lots of darkness, lots of difficulty, lots of doom and gloom. And yet it's interesting. God always sent his prophets in and around those times when the people were having the most trouble. Why? So they would recognize that he was still there in the midst of those troubling times. The prophets were meant to be an encouragement to the people of God. To lift them up and say, your God has not abandoned you. This too is under his control. He's still there. Stay the course. Keep walking. Paul doesn't tell the sailors, hey, it's all going to be good. He prepares them for what's coming. We're going to run aground. By the way, they're going to run aground whether he says anything or not. So you might as well say something and get them ready for it. Despite every assurance, despite every reassurance, despite all of your work and all of our precautions, despite God's word of encouragement and word of warning, our spiritual lives are going to run aground and we are going to be at risk. 
The next section, picking up in verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. Real quickly, a sounding, take a piece of rope, okay? Put a big old lead weight on the end of that piece of rope. You stretch it out, arm's length of an adult man. Tie a knot. Stretch it out, arm's length of an adult man. Tie a knot. Stretch it out, arms like that's a fathom, about six feet, wing spread of a typical adult male. You then take that big heavy lead weight, all that rope with all those knots, you drop it over the side, hits the bottom. And you just count how many knots go over the edge. Twenty knots went over the edge, twenty fathoms, about 120 feet deep. We keep reading. I had to go look that one up. I didn't know that one. Told you I was a landlubber. Okay? We keep reading. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. Not sure how these sailors knew they were approaching land, but they knew it. They could sense it from the way the waves were breaking or something, clued them in. And they find that the water is getting shallower. They are coming toward land. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they, the sailors, let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, Sorry, yeah, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Now look what's going on here. The, the, they've dropped the anchors off the back of the boat. Those are all tied to the beam across the back, and they're hoping that it'll grab bottom and slow the boat down. But there's a way to drop anchors off the front, but you can't drop them off the top because that'll pull the nose into the waves. So you've got to go attach those to the bottom of the bow. So they've got to get in this little boat and go out the front and attach those anchors off the front of the boat. Again, I had to look that up also. So they're getting in the boat. Well, somehow, whether by divine uh, a revelation or just because he could read people, Paul realizes that the sailors are lying. They're not getting in the dinghy to go attach anchors to the front. They're getting in the dinghy, dinghy to abandon ship. They're afraid that because the ship has got a deeper a draft, that it's going to hit a reef. And Paul has already said, you're going to hit something. So the sailors are going, well, this guy Paul, he seems to know what he's talking about. He says we're going to strike ground. I think we ought to get off the ship. And then watch what happens here. <clears throat> Verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers... Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Ponder that for a moment. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So the sailors were lowering the boat over the side. Paul warns Julius. Julius grabs a couple of his men. They pull their swords out. They, walk, they hack the ropes, and the boat is taken away, and the sailors are stuck on board. All for one and one for all. We're all in this together at this point. Paul makes an amazing statement there in verse 31. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Paul, you don't understand God. I mean, come on, twice now, twice. Jesus himself told you that you're going to go to Rome. And he just sent his angel a couple of nights ago to reaffirm that promise that nobody's going to be lost. Salvation is assured. God's got it. Come on, Paul. You're an apostle. Don't you know these things? 
Paul himself says we will be lost if they take that action. How does that happen? How can it be that God has made a promise and that this is guaranteed and at the same time Paul is worried that the promise could be undermined by human action? Our family, when we get together, especially as a larger group, we like to play various card games. And you got 8, 10, 12 people trying to play one card game. You don't try to deal all the cards around the whole table. What do you do? You make piles right in front of yourself right here. So you deal all the cards, and you start pushing the hands out to the people. It's not uncommon that the hand will go to the wrong person. The third person around the table will mistakenly get the fourth pile of cards. Now, at this point, it's all random. Nobody's looked at the cards. It doesn't matter who gets which hand, right? But of course... Somebody will make a little fun with this, usually Uncle Brian being difficult, my brother. He will say, you just messed with providence. God meant for me to have those cards, and you took them. You just messed with providence. It's mind-bending. Seriously? So if you switch them back, well, but what if providence meant for me to switch the cards? But if I switch them back to providence, ah! how to think about how providence and human action come together is just, it's mind-bending. You can't wrap your head around it. There is one sense in which we say God's plan cannot be thwarted. He has said, you're getting to Rome. But the apostle turns right around and says, we're only getting there, though, if these guys stay on board. Paul says that what people do matters. It affects the outcome. And then Paul, not God, Paul took the action necessary for the salvation of those on board, though their salvation had been promised by God. He does not sit back and rest in Christ and say, well, just whatever. Sure, let him go. It's all good. You know, there are a lot of passages that make it very clear that our salvation is of God. Fully, entirely, finally of God. But if we're going to be biblically faithful, we can't stop there. We have to also acknowledge that there are a lot of passages that talk about our salvation depending upon us. Deuteronomy 30, 19, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. What you do with what I've given you matters. Joshua 24, 15, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The choices matter. Joel 2.32, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Matthew 5.20, Jesus himself says, I tell you, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It is true that God saves. But do not understand that to mean that we do nothing and have no responsibility. The problem is when we try to figure out how the two sides go together. When we try to sort out God's providence and our uh, our responsibility and we try to explain them and we inevitably will uh, uh, skew to one error or one side or the other. We need to learn to say, God saves and I have a responsibility to do some things. I have some responsibility to do some things and God is taking care of everything. Charles Simon said it this way, the truth is not in the middle and it is not in one extreme, but in both extremes. Who among among us thinks Paul lacked faith? Any of you ready to say the Apostle Paul didn't have enough faith? Paul believed God's promise that they would get to Rome, but Paul also believed that meant there were things that were incumbent upon him to do. He took drastic action to do the things necessary that the boat would be saved, the ship would be saved. Verse 33, reassurance. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued to, uh, in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. This is not the Lord's Supper, it's just dinner, <laughs> Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. I don't know about you, but my brain is hurting at this point. This is just mental whiplash. In the last paragraph before, Paul was scrambling to secure the future of the boat, and now he's reassuring everyone that their future is secure. It's back and forth, back and forth. Why? I just a moment ago quoted Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But let me read on the next verse. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Your work is fruitful because God is at work. Paul says, take a moment, get some food, strengthen yourself, rest a bit. It's all good. My God has promised that not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Perhaps they were all beautifully bald. Thank you. We have seen the assurance of God to Paul. We've seen Paul rest in the providence and provision of God. We have seen him take caution. We have seen him uh, extol hard work. We have seen the doubts that arise and the reassurance that comes from God and the warning about what the future is going to hold and the fact that they were at risk at one point, that they would, salvation would be lost. And now here we have re-reassurance. God's word again coming to them to bring comfort. So now back to rest, Right? I'm exhausted just reading this story at this point, and I'm not living in the midst of it. And then verse 38. And when they had eaten enough, 
they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. It said earlier that they had thrown over the cargo. Now they have some wheat to eat. What's going on? They had held back enough to feed themselves. And at this point, they're throwing even that over. This is it. This is desperation. This is the point of no return. If God does not save them, they're done. Even if they ride out the storm, they're going to be out in the middle of the sea with no food, no gear, nothing. They're going to starve to death if God does not take them into port. This is an act of utter desperation, even though God has just reassured them. Verse 39, now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, to, if possible, to run the ship ashore. It's over. If you're a movie buff, you'll recognize what this is. This is the false ending. You know how it goes, right? At an hour and ten minutes into the movie, everything looks like it's going to resolve, going to be all good, but you're always like, it's too early. This movie can't be this short. And you realize that this is the, the, the emotional roller coaster. The director is just jerking with your emotions. That's kind of what's going on here. Oh, there's sand. We got a sandy beach. We'll just run the ship into the sand. We'll hop over and wait up on the shore and be saved. But then what do we read? So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. Everybody is uh, exhaling. Everybody on deck is relaxing. They're high-fiving each other. And then they are immediately all thrown on their faces, bloodied and battered. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. A few years ago, there was a woman out hiking the Appalachian Trail. I think this was in Maine. It was on the northern portion of the Appalachian Trail. And she got lost. She got off the trail and wandered away. For 30-plus days, she would go out every day and try to find the trail. And she got really close. And the reason people know this is because when the rescuers finally found her dead body, in the tent they found a journal that she had been keeping. And she had talked about where she had gone and how she would marked the trees so she would know where she had gone. And every day she would put out, but eventually she ran out of food and she lay down under her tent and died. And when the rescuers went out and took a look at her efforts, they realized that on two different occasions she had come within a few yards of the trail. Through the thickness of the forest, she couldn't see it. She turned around and went back to her tent. She was that close, and she died. That's kind of how this feels here, doesn't it? There it is. The beach is in sight. We're right here on the edge. We've got it. We've made it. And now the ship is stuck on a reef, and the weakened vessel, the waves are breaking on the back of it, And the ship now begins to crumble. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. 
There's a chance that a few could make it from this far out. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. Jumping into storm-tossed water on a reef. The wrong wave breaks at the wrong time. I don't care how good a swimmer you are. And crashes your head against the coral reef, you're dead. Slices your leg open against one of those sharp pieces, and a shark likes the smell of that, and you're dead. They are terrified, exhausted, whipped. But they jump in the water. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Young Bible readers, young Christians, young Bible scholars struggle with Acts 27. Why is it here? Why does Paul or Luke spill so much ink, give up such a large portion of his limited scroll space for this? I'd rather know what the outcome of Peter's ministry. I wouldn't mind hearing about how St. Thomas ended up in India. For that matter, how about what happened with Paul when he finally stands before Caesar? Why does Luke include this? I hope you are already beginning to recognize why. The wizened Bible scholar, the Christian who has lived a life, knows what this is. It's a metaphor for the Christian life. It is a picture of what we go through. The 276 souls aboard that ship, they are God's elect. God has promised to save them. And yet, that doesn't mean life was easy. That doesn't mean that everything was going to go swimmingly. Giving your life to Christ is not the promise of an easy life. It's the promise of a spectacular outcome. Of an unmatched destiny. Of an unimaginable end. But we must Face it with the wisdom of Acts 27. Recognizing that we are going to be tossed about. But God will come and his word will reassure us. And we're going to have doubts, but God's word will come and it will reassure us. And we're going to have times when we are going to have to give everything we have to fight against the forces of this world that would drag us down and drown us. But God will bring us through. The destination makes the difficult journey worth it. By God's grace, you will be delivered. He will set your feet on the solid ground of eternal life, as he has promised. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will 
and to work for his good pleasure. Amen. Lord Jesus, let us see in this passage the challenges of the Christian life, but the wonderful assurance that you will deliver on your promises. At times, we are going to be baffled as to how that's going to happen. Our faith is going to wax and wane. Our doubts are going to rise up and threaten to swamp us. The world is going to overwhelm us. We're not going to understand how that all comes together. And yet, Lord, you will bring us through. Give us hope in that this morning. In these trying and difficult times when we have reason to wonder and to doubt, reassure us that our efforts are worth it, that we need to stay the course, that we need to stay after it, because it is you who is working all these things, bringing them about for your good pleasure. We trust in this and ask that you would bless us even as we await the final outcome. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.